How many of you know the significance of March 17th? March 17th is St. Patrick's Day. It is St. Patrick's Day. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the Boston area, it seemed like everybody dressed in green on St. Patrick's Day. It would be a big deal, big celebration. But see, I'm of a Scottish heritage, and uh, we, we never had a parade. We never had people dressing up in our colors. Nobody ever celebrated our patron saint. In fact, when I was a kid, I, uh, I'll confess, I was a bit jealous of the Irish. But did you know this? This question for you. Did you know that the history of Christianity in Ireland and Scotland are inextricably woven together? They are linked to each other. And that link comes through two men whose lives illustrate the topic of this morning's message. So how about a little uh, how about a little story from church history? Are you okay for that? I've got to take you back a long time now. We go back to the year A.D. 389. That's a long time ago. A.D. 389. There was a 16-year-old boy who was a British Christian, and he was kidnapped by Irish raiders and taken as a slave back to the pagan kingdom of Ireland. He served there for six years as a slave to those who had kidnapped him from his homeland. And then he managed to escape. He escaped and he found his way back to Britain. And there in Britain, he entered into the church like his father and grandfather before him and slowly rose through the ranks, as it were, until he became a bishop in the Christian church there back in Britain. And about the age of 60, he had a longing in his heart to return to the land of his captivity and to preach the gospel to those people of Ireland. And so he did that. And for 30 years, this man known as St. Patrick preached the gospel through the land of Ireland and many, many came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's an amazing story. But the story gets even better than that. Almost 100 years later, A.D. 521, there was a child born in Ireland to Christian parents. They raised him in the faith, and uh, when he became of age, he entered into the service of the church. At about uh, the age of 39, tragedy struck in his life in that he became involved in a dispute over a copy of the book of Psalms. Now, that seems kind of innocuous, uh, innocuous but this, this dispute grew in such passion and fervor that it, it eventuated in a battle in which 3,000 people lost their lives. And he was at, sort of at the center of this. As a result of his involvement in this tragic affair, the church authorities expelled him from his homeland of Ireland. And he left Ireland and he traveled to pagan Scotland 
that he might bring the gospel to the tribe known as the Picts, who were a fierce pagan warrior tribe. And in his words, he went there to seek to win as many souls to the Lord as were lost in that battle. There, the man known as St. Columba ministered for 35 years until his death, enjoying a vast and effective evangelistic ministry. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Through the misery, through the pain, Christianity was brought from Britain to Ireland by St. Patrick, and then about a hundred years later brought from Ireland to Scotland by St. Columba. Beloved, God works through tragedy in ways that we could never imagine. Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1132. We're going to look at one verse this morning together in this marvelous epistle. Romans 8, and we are looking at verse 28. Romans 8 and verse 28. And we are returning to the broad topic of sanctification, that is to become like Christ. That's what the word sanctification means, becoming like Christ. So we're returning to that very broad topic that occupies uh, the Apostle Paul here in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And in particular, we are dealing here in this section of Romans 8 with the more narrow topic of the place of suffering in our sanctification. What is the role of suffering in sanctification? And Paul has been speaking about that since uh, verse 18. Actually, you can just let your eyes go back there to verse 18, chapter 8. And notice where he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare to the glory to be revealed to us. And so he introduces the topic of suffering here, and he's continuing to talk about that role of suffering. So here in verse 28, he is speaking about suffering and sovereignty. Suffering and sovereignty. Previously, verses 18 through 25, he was speaking about suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. The idea that we are able to suffer because we have a hope of glory. That is a hope of the future resurrection of the body. Verses 26, 27, he was talking about suffering and prayer. And that we're able to suffer because the Spirit helps us in our prayers. So it's suffering in glory, suffering in prayer, and now finishing this topic of suffering, verse 28, it is suffering and sovereignty. The big idea is, is that we're able to suffer because God is accomplishing good through it. God is accomplishing good through it. So let's just take a look at the verse, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul introduces this section here. Notice it, verse 28, where he says, and we know. He's reminding his readers and by extension, he's reminding us of something that we already know to be true. He's not introducing anything new here. No new information. He is just drawing, really drawing out an implication of something that we already know to be true. That is the sovereignty of God. He is talking about the sovereignty of God. So he's not telling them anything new here, but he's telling them something very important. 
especially the people who either already are or may soon be suffering for their faith. So as we look at this verse together this morning, I want to examine with you two aspects of suffering and sovereignty. Two aspects of suffering and sovereignty that we must understand so that we will not despair when God brings suffering into our lives. If you are not presently suffering, you will soon enough. And so this message is applicable to all of us. Two aspects of suffering and sovereignty. I've got them for you on your handout. First aspect is the promise. The promise. God will subjugate your suffering. That's the promise. Secondly is the premise. The premise. You must be a child of God. We have a promise and a premise. Now, it's probably true. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is undoubtedly one of a, a verse that you're very familiar with. Romans 8.28. Probably many of you could recite this from heart. In fact, this is probably a verse that is very greatly comforting to you in your times of trouble as well. Might even be your one of your favorite verses. It's certainly one of my favorite verses. As we look at this verse now together, I'm going to depart slightly from a typical way that we would approach it. That is, we would kind of approach it chronologically, start at the beginning of the verse and work our way through. But I don't want to do it that way with you this morning. I want to reverse the order of the verse. I want to look at the back end of the verse, the second half of the verse first, and then come back to the beginning part of the verse. And the reason I want to do that is because I think by doing that, it will bring out the power of the promise and make it that much more vivid for us. All right, so we have the promise and we have the prerequisite, but I want to look with you first at the prerequisite. The promise is simple. It's just that God causes all things to work together for good. That's the promise. God causes all things to work together for good. But let's talk about the premise that stands behind that promise first. The prerequisite to those who love God. Do you see it? Second half of the verse to those who love God. Love for God is the definition of what it means to be one of his children. To be a God lover, to love God is what it means to be one of his children. This love for God lies at the very heart, the very core of what it means to be a child of his. It lies at the very core of the Shema, that is the, the great confession of Israel recorded for us in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. So it lies at the very core of what it means to be a child of God. Paul uses this kind of expression to describe Christians only occasionally, but he does use it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24 would be an illustration of that. But here in the context of Romans 8, I think he's using it to, to, uh, to draw out a contrast between the flesh people of verse 7 who actually hate God and the spirit people who do indeed love him. I think he's still drawing on that earlier material, flesh people and spirit people. And you'll have to go back to earlier sermons and refresh yourself on that. So when he says here to those who love God, he is not speaking about two kinds of Christians. 
He's not saying that this promise in the earlier part of the verse is true, but it's only true for the Christians that love God and the Christians that merely like him. It's not true. There are not Christians who love God and Christians who merely like God. There are Christians that love God and there are everybody else who hates God. And that's all there are. Two kinds of people in the world. Those who love God and those who do not. The God lovers are his children. Everyone else, by definition, is a child of wrath and hostile to God. We see that earlier in the chapter. Verse 7 of the same chapter here. So it's those who love God are his children. Those who are hostile to God, flesh people, are not. So this promise is for all believers. This is a promise for all believers. Now, it's interesting just syntactically or the way this this sentence, this verse is put together here, that in the Greek, the phrase, those who love God, is placed first in the sentence. Doesn't appear that way in your English translations, but but literally in the Greek, it is first in the verse, and it's it's put there intentionally to draw the reader's attention to it, to emphasize something. It's drawing out and emphasizing a certain characteristic of people in whom there is this assurance that God is working. It's only those who love God. That may depend upon the promise of all things working together for good. That's the idea of the emphasis. First in the sentence. So if you were to translate this more literally, we would say that, and we know that those who love God, God causes all things to work together for good. That kind of an idea. So it's done for emphasis here. This promise is for God lovers, and God lovers are by definition his children. So this promise is for his children. It's for his children. Paul goes on further here in verse 28 to to sort of further define the prerequisite here, who these children are. And here he says it is to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God would be a description of believers from the human perspective. The second phrase would be a description of believers from the divine perspective. Those who love God, that's the kind of the human perspective of it all. The divine perspective of those who are called according to his purpose. In fact, the reality of the matter is until God calls a sinner out from their fallen state, they can only hate God. They are indeed God's enemies. Romans 5 verse 10. Therefore, God's call upon his children precedes and enables them to become lovers of God. First John chapter four, verse 19, John says we love because he first loved us. First John 419. Or John chapter six, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So when Paul says here, verse 28, Romans 8, to those who are called according to his purpose, he is speaking again about the believer, about the Christian, about the child of God. But he is saying something about them from the divine point of view. That is that they have been called by God to be his children. And that call of God shows itself, manifests itself in them becoming lovers of God. 
What does it mean to be called by God? What does it mean to be called by God? Well, in a very general sense, everyone who hears the gospel is called upon to believe it. There is a what's called a general or external call of God. Jesus refers to that in Matthew, chapter 22, verse 14. He says many are called, but few are chosen. That is a general external gospel call every time the gospel is preached. All are called upon to repent and believe. But even a cursory review of church history shows that most, if not all, who receive the external general call of God fail to respond to it. They do not accept it. Jesus himself said, Matthew 7, verse 14, the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who, excuse me, who find it. Paul's preaching experience, Acts chapter 17 Verses 32 to 34, it says, after preaching a, a powerful message there in Athens, it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. That is, a few people responded, but most wanted nothing to do with that external, general call of God coming to them through the gospel. The difference, though, is that when the writers of the New Testament epistles, that is, the letters in the New Testament, of which Paul is one, use the, the word called or calling in which God is the subject of the action, that is, God is the one who called or does the calling, here in these New Testament letters, it is used exclusively in reference to the sovereign regenerating work of God in the human heart, whereby we are brought to new life through union with Jesus Christ. So in these New Testament epistles, these New Testament letters, when it talks about the called of God, it talks about God calling. It is speaking about something that theologians call the effectual call of God. That is, that is the internal call of God upon which the unbeliever does respond. He repents and believes. Romans chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. The called of Jesus Christ. So here in verse 28, when Paul says to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, he's speaking about God's sovereign call in their lives, which manifests itself in their love for God and is the prerequisite for the great promise that he gives them. Notice again, take a look at the verse. It says they are called according to his purpose, his purpose or his plan. Now, this expression, according to his purpose, actually is parallel to the adjective in the earlier part of the verse, good. Take a look at that. God causes all things to work together for good. That is parallel to this expression, according to his purpose. What I'm saying is that they're one and the same thing. According to his purpose and good are an identical idea here in this verse. And they are further defined when you move on into verse 29, the middle of that verse, where it says predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. 
That's what the good is. That's what the purpose is. It is to make people like Jesus Christ. And that's really the key that opens up the significance here of the promise in the earlier part of the book. The great promise that the Apostle Paul gives here to those who are effectually called of God, those who love God, is that God is working in their life all things to bring about good, that is his purpose, that is to make them like Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. So that takes us to the first aspect. Back to the first aspect, the promise. God will subjugate your suffering. That is his promise. That is that God will subdue. God will conquer. God will rule over your suffering in order to bring about his purpose. And we know, verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good. All things. In the context here, all things can't be anything but suffering. This is a suffering context. I showed you it begins back in verse 18, actually the end of verse 17 into 18. And so the, the all things that he speaks of here, that the God causes all things, has to be, by primary interpretation, a reference to suffering. Suffering. This, by the way, is further confirmed within the context when you look down to verse 35. Where it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All the difficulties that come upon the believer due to the hostile actions of other people. Now, I think that Paul would agree to a widening out of the application, though, to something more than just persecution. More than just persecution. In fact, I would submit to you that he is arguing from the greater to the lesser. And therefore, we can confidently say that if persecution is harnessed by God for our good, then it stands to reason that everything else, God is working in the same way in them. That is, that he is causing the, the lesser difficulties of life, even the devastating things in life, like the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child, he is bringing all of that into subjection and working it out for our good, which is defined as making us more like who? Christ. Health problems, financial setbacks, difficult relationships, all of these things are lesser troubles than being persecuted for your faith in Christ. And so if God is using that to make you like Christ, he will use the lesser things as well. Notice Paul again, verse 28, he says he causes all things to work together. Work together. The Greek verb here is synergeo. It's from this we derive the English word synergism. Synergism. Synergism is the idea of, of uh, various elements that uh, produce an effect greater than and often completely different from the sum of the individual elements acting separately. And something works in synergism, that is, you get something more than the individual elephants, uh, elements, maybe elephants, but elements for sure, and, and typically different from them. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Romans, he, he illustrates it this way, and it was such a good illustration, I'm copying it and uh, giving it to you. And it's this. He says, table salt. 
is a great illustration of this. It's, it's composed of two poisons, sodium and chlorine. But together, they are beneficial to sustain life. They form table salt. There's a synergism that's going on there. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not promising that God will overrule the evils and troubles of life in such a way to make our life happy or to make our life healthy or to make us prosperous or to make us trouble-free. That's not what he's promising in Romans 8.28. When God causes all things to work together for good, he is not promising you a happy, productive, prosperous, trouble-free life. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer what? Persecution. So that's what you should be looking for. You should be looking for that, not the promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. But what Paul is promising you here is that God will overrule. God will overpower. God will subjugate those troubles in such a way that they work synergistically, synergistically to change us into the likeness of Christ. In a word... They're part of our sanctification process. The troubles of this life are part of the sanctification process. Now, how can Paul make this kind of a promise? How can Paul say that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose? The answer is that God is in control of everything. God is in control of everything. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of this universe. He is sovereign. That is, he has ruling authority over it and power over that which he has made. Every single aspect of the creation falls under his authority and rule. The Bible tells us God is actively and relentlessly guiding and directing his creation so that it might accomplish his eternal purpose. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, God who works all things after the counsel of his will. God is doing what he chooses to do in his creation, not just at a macro level, but right down at the very base level of every single detail. It is the working out of his great sovereign plan. What that means, folks, is that evil cannot thwart God's plan. Evil cannot thwart God's plan. In fact, evil is subdued and forced to accomplish His will. Evil is subdued and forced to accomplish His will. Theologians, by the way, call this ongoing activity of God providence. We don't use that word very much anymore, and that's a shame we're poorer because of it. We should speak more of the providence of God. It is the unseen hand of the Almighty at work. And it is the basis of our confidence when all things are seemingly going wrong. When the wheels are falling off, it is providence that holds us firm. Remember, it's important here. Now, God or Paul did not say That all things are good. Look at the verse again. Paul is not saying that all things are good. In fact, much of life is definitely evil. And the longer I live, the more I find that to be true. Much in life is definitely evil and I would say quite bad. 
So it's not that we're saying that life is good. We're sticking our fingers in our ears. We're closing our eyes and we're just pretending. What we are saying is that God directs the affairs of life in such a way for those who love him that the outcome of life's troubles is always beneficial. The outcome of life's troubles is always beneficial. It is good. Look again at the verse. God causes all things to work together for good. Not necessarily what we think is best, not necessarily what we might define as good, but it's according to God's definition of goodness. His definition of goodness is the likeness of Jesus Christ. Write this down somewhere. Hardship advances godliness more than ease or comfort. Hardship advances godliness more than ease and comfort. But honestly, for most of us, what do we seek after? Huh? We're shooting for comfort. We're shooting for ease. But the reality of the matter is that it is hardship that God uses most often to advance the godliness. Think with me on this, you know, Christ suffered, isn't that true? Christ suffered. And we who are like Him are going to suffer too. We're going to suffer too. But we have a tremendous promise here. We have a tremendous hope. And that is that our suffering is not in vanity. Our God is actively at work and it's actually, our suffering is actually the very means by which we are becoming like the Savior whom we love. And desire to emulate. That's what makes this promise so powerful. God is working in us through all of the bad stuff in life, actively changing us to make us like Jesus Christ. How does it work? The bottom of your handout, I've given you this section here. I wasn't sure how fast I needed to go through it, so I've written it down for you. You can go back to it in your own time. I'm not going to look up all these verses with you. I'm... You can do that on your own. But how does this work? Just practically speaking, how does it work? Well, it's one thing to say that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Done, you know. Now I feel better. <laughs> well, yeah, and nah. <laughs> We need, a, we need a little more robust examination of this. We need a, to, to really see how this is at work here. So how does it work? Well, let me, let me suggest a few ways how it might be working in your life. Suffering and pain produces endurance. Suffering and pain produces endurance in the life of a believer. And endurance is a Christ-like virtue. Jesus was one who endured, right? Despising the shame, he endured the cross. We are called to endure like him. And so suffering and pain produces endurance. Beyond that, suffering cultivates compassion for other people who are hurting. Jesus is compassionate. He is tender. Is that not true? And so for us to be like him, we need to be compassionate people as well. And one of the ways that that God makes you or me compassionate towards others who are hurting is he puts us in pain, too. 
So God takes your pain, your suffering, and he works in you in order to enable you to be more compassionate towards others who are suffering. Kind of changes your perspective on things, doesn't it? When you're when your back hurts or, you know, whatever it is. Suffering demonstrates faith. Suffering, suffering is a place to demonstrate our faith. It's easy to say we have faith when everything's going well. I believe because it's good. Faith shows itself when things are not going good. The diamond shines bright when it is spread out on black velvet. Your faith will shine in the midst of your suffering. Suffering makes us long for the return of Christ. Suffering takes our eyes off this world and it lifts them from the horizontal to the heavenward. And we are looking and longing and anxious for the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, if everything's going well, what do you care whether Christ comes or not? I mean, the blessed hope of the imminent return of Jesus Christ was so precious to the early church because the early church was suffering. If you can't wait for the weekend so you can get on your boat and go out on the lake and whatever, then what do you want Christ to return for and mess all that up? Suffering causes a revamping of priorities. A revamping of priorities away from self-gratification and toward service to others. Suffering causes us to reevaluate our priorities in life. Suffering can produce greater evangelistic effort. Fascinating there. I'm not going to go there. You go yourself and you read that in Acts 5. Suffering produced greater evangelistic effort. Not lesser. The more they're flogged, the more they preach. Here's one for me. Suffering reveals our impatience and pride. Suffering reveals our impatience and pride. I don't want anybody to see me like this. I don't want anybody to see me weak, see me suffering. Or I don't need any help. I can do it myself. But, see, I really do need help. I can't do it myself. And so suffering has a way of just kind of leveling all of that and showing you how prideful you really are. It's particularly uh, applicable, by the way, uh, young men. Young men, because pride is your constant threat. The arrogance of youth, big, strong, cut the world by the tail. Suffering comes. It will show you how weak you really are. How much you need others. Are there any examples or illustrations of this? Sure. There's one for you. Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50, verse 20, life of Joseph. Remember Joseph? His brothers hated him. Brothers wanted him dead. In fact, if they'd have had any guts, they'd have murdered him. Well, they didn't want the blood on their own hands, and so they threw him in a hole in the ground and waited until the slave traders came along that they could sell him to the slave traders who would take him down to Egypt and kill him for them. And then their hands would be nice and clean. So they sold him into slavery into Egypt. And you know the story how he suffered. 
but later was raised to a position of prominence and authority second only to Pharaoh in the kingdom. And finally, his brothers come down looking for food and they're before him and he's now revealed himself to them. And, and they know that, that this guy that they were going to kill and when he was crying to them, pleading for mercy from the bottom of the well and they ignored his cries, they now are at his feet and he could have them snuffed out like that and they're afraid. Joseph says to them, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God causes all things to work together for good, right? To those who love Him, to those called according to His purpose. There was a group of relatively young men, early 30s. Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, Roger Udarian and a man by the name of Nate Saint. They were seeking to bring the gospel to a remote tribal people, the Aka Indians. They had made several contacts with them and given them gifts to show friendship and so forth. And there had been gifts sent in return. And, and they thought it would be okay to, to now land and, and try to make contact with these people who had a reputation for incredible violence, murder. In fact, I was, I was watching an interview um, about this and uh, the anthropologists have researched the tribe and they could, only, could find only one person, one man who ever died of natural causes in that whole tribe. Everyone else died violently. This is a tribe that was steeped in hatred and, and anger and murder. 1956, they landed on a little beach area there and wasn't long before the warriors from the tribe came and killed them all. Every single one of them. Left young children, wives. Later, the Spirit of God moved. So the widows of several of these men went back into the area and began to share the gospel. And the Spirit of God moved. And, and many, many came to faith in Christ, including this man, Minke who happens to be the man who murdered Steve Saint's father, Nate. Now, Steve Saint and Minke are close personal friends, even though the man murdered his father 62 years ago. Folks, that's suffering. That's suffering. To have your father killed you're a young boy. And yet now to, to be a close personal friend and Christian brother with the man who murdered your own father. That's forgiveness. That's the work of Christ in a person's heart. That's Steve Saint being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God working all things together for good according to his purpose. Will we be able to always see that in our lives? Is there going to be a, a great, happy ending at the end of everything in your life? Can you identify specifically the good that God is always going to bring from the hardship and sufferings in your life? No. No, you can't. You can't. 
I would submit to you actually that most of the time you will never know. You will never know specifically what God is doing in you when you are in the midst of your sufferings. In fact, I think it's a fool's errand to try to figure it out. Instead, what we need to do is that we need to live by faith, trusting the Word of God who says that He is working all things together for good. Here at FBC, we've had our share of suffering. Some of you are presently suffering. Some of you have suffered in the past. I mean, in this body alone, we've had to bury children. We've buried husbands. We've buried wives. Some of you have, even as we speak, serious and debilitating medical conditions. Excruciating pain. Some of you are experiencing very serious financial setbacks. Ruined. I know others here are dying on the inside because of relational conflict at work or at home or among relatives, extended family, those kinds of things. Will you see God bring about the good from each and every one of these? I don't know. I, don't, I hope so. I mean, I hope you can see and look back in the rearview mirror and say, yeah, that's, God was doing exactly that in my life in this instance. I hope you can see that. I'd love to hear about it. It would be a great testimony. But don't hang your hat on that. If you can't see what God's doing and you're in the midst of the pain right now, that's when you walk by faith. That's when you grab a hold of Christ and you hang on and you say, I won't let go till you bless me. Paul says, if he has given us his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans 8.32 Beloved, if he has given you Christ, He will conform you to His image. He will make you like Jesus. Walk by faith. Embrace His plan for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. You know of Him. Maybe you know a fair amount about the Bible even. But if I were to ask you, friend, if you were to die tonight, if God were to take back the life that He has given you on loan, if He were to draw it back tonight, if He were to call it in, and you were to stand before Him, and He says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell Him? Would you begin to parade your good deeds before Him? As if somehow that is going to accomplish it? Do you know what God's standard is? God's standard is perfection. Perfection. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 48, You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've met a lot of people and I've never met anybody yet who won't agree to this statement. Nobody's, what? Perfect. 
That's our problem. The entrance is the entrance fee is perfection, and you don't have it. You're not coming. You need someone to pay the price for you. You need someone to die in your place. To bear the wrath of God rightly deserved upon your sin and then to lend to you His perfection that you might meet the entrance requirements. That's what it means when the Bible says that Jesus died for your sins. It's available to you if you will embrace Him by faith. If you will call out to Him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe He rose again from the dead, proving for all time that He died not for His own sin, but for mine. I believe His righteousness meets the requirements. I want to be your child. If you will call out to Him in faith, the Bible tells you that you will be saved. If you want to talk more on these things, there will be some folks over here by this lighted cross in just a minute or two. We want to talk to you. Don't leave this place without knowing Christ. Let me pray. Father God, what an amazing promise you've given to us. All things work together for good. To those who love God. To those who call according to His purpose. Our Father, this is our stability. This is our rock. This is our hope in a mixed up, messed up, hurtful world. Pray you would encourage our hearts this morning with this truth. Help us to apprehend it by faith. Pray as well, Lord, for those ones here today who have yet to embrace Christ as their Savior. May you grant them this day life everlasting. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.